All right, after spending chapter 1 presenting the idea that Jesus Christ is everything that we need, uh, Jesus Christ is the fullness of God, Jesus Christ is in whom we get forgiveness of sins, uh, you don't need anything else except for Jesus Christ. Um, he moves into chapter 2 and, and starts off by saying he wishes he could be there with the Colossians because he wants to fight these false teachers. He wants them to remain strong. He wants them to be rooted and built up in Jesus Christ. They want, he wants them to have a firm anchor in Jesus Christ and do this with all thanksgiving. He begins in verse 8 of chapter 2 dealing with specifics as far as the false teaching that is going on there in the church at Colossae, the false teaching of the Gnostics or whatever this heresy is. And last week we talked about how that he took care of the philosophy situation, he took care of the traditions of men, he dealt with uh, more than likely astrology, we're not quite sure if that's exactly what's going on there, but majority of people believe that's probably what he's talking about. And he of course makes the, the point beginning at verse 11, that this idea of them being circumcised, and evidently that's something that the Gnostics were requiring, uh, they did not need to be circumcised because they've already been circumcised by being Christians, by being baptized into the blood of Jesus Christ. He even makes the point, why in the world would you want to have a, a go through the, the aspect of having a portion of your uh, flesh cut off when you have the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, he makes mention of how that they were buried with him in baptism. And because of that, uh, that means that they were dead in their sins at one time, but they rise, of course, forgiven of God and uh, through Jesus Christ. And he deals with this idea of circumcision because he is now going to deal with more aspects of Judaism that were a part of the Gnostics' beliefs and faith. Um, before we actually get into this aspect of it, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but um, why was it so important to the Gnostics to um, be legalistic, if you will, and try to enforce uh, circumcision and, and all the rest of Judaism on these Christians? What, was, what would be the advantage to that? All right, very good. So they have control. If they can make someone believe that they can be a better Christian by doing what they said, by making rules that the Bible didn't make, they could have control over them. And Paul, of course, is going to put an end to this in, in this particular section. He's already dealt with philosophy, like we said. He's already dealt with the, the astrology aspect of Gnosticism. And he's touched on Judaism as far as circumcision is concerned. But now he's really going to lay Judaism bare and say how foolish it is to be involved and anything relating to the old law. And it's interesting, though, <clears throat> you make, make sure we understand the transition here between verses 13 and 14. We often go to verse 14 because it is a good, quote-unquote, proof text to tell us that we're no longer under the old law of Moses. But yet, at the same time, don't miss the transition here. Notice that he is talking about circumcision in verse 11. And then he starts talking about baptism. And then after talking about baptism, he talks about how that through this baptism, we can have forgiven, uh, well, i just read what it says, hath, uh, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcised of your, uncircumcision of your flesh hath been made alive or quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. 
All your sins have been forgiven. Then, without stopping, he goes into this next verse and tells us how they can be forgiven. By blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Make sure you don't miss the transition there. He's, he's, he's transitioning into something else, but he's showing how this relates to what he's already said. The reason why baptism can save us, the reason why we can be forgiven through Jesus Christ is because of the fact when Jesus died on the cross, he did away with the old law. If you are still under the old law, you can't be forget, forgiven by Christ. And to say that you can do the things that were part of the old law to somehow or another make you a better Christian or make you more special or make you more spiritual, then what you're doing is actually attacking the cross of Christ and saying it's not sufficient enough to save you, that you need something more. And so don't miss that transition of what he's doing there. But of course, the overall thing we know because of what he's going to start saying here in these next couple of verses, he's really going to put it to those who believe that you have to keep anything under the law of Moses anymore. The law of Moses is gone. We're no longer under the Old Testament. In fact, let me say this, and you might think it's heresy, but we're no longer under the Ten Commandments. In fact, that's what he's going to be saying right here. Now, obviously, in the New Testament, those proponents of the moral code of the law of the Ten Commandments are found there. But as far as being us being under the Ten Commandments, that's not us any longer. In fact, notice what he says now in verse 14. He says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. What is the handwriting of ordinances? All right, the law of Moses. Notice, notice what the Apostle Paul has done here. And some translations have it different here, but I like the way the King James put it. He called it the handwriting of ordinances. What does that make you think of? The command that were written by the hand of God. So he's saying something pretty powerful here. And think about a person who is a Jew, how sacred those tablets of stone were. Think about how that when Judaism was what it's supposed to be and they had the temple and they had the holies of holies and they had the Ark of Covenant. What was inside that Ark of Covenant? The Ten Commandments, the two tables of stone that were handwritten by God. So Paul just doesn't come out and say, hey, you're no longer under the old law. He goes back to the very heart, the very special, the very epitome of what the Jews believed as far as what the law was completely based upon, and that's those Ten Commandments. The things, the ordinances, the laws that were handwritten by God. But not only does he just say you're no longer under them, notice in the King James it has blotted out or blotting out. What do some other translations have? All right, canceled the written code. Anything else? Wiped out. All right, the record of the charges against us, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment. Um, the word here in the Greek is a word that is, was used by people. You remember when things were written in the Old Testament, they weren't written on paper like this. They weren't written on notebook paper or printer paper. They were written on papyrus 
or animal scans. But what's interesting is that was something that was very, very expensive. You know, you just can't go, out, go to the, the, the stationary store and buy papyrus or, or animal skins for writing. That was considered something that was special, to have some kind of handwriting thing. But another thing that's interesting about uh, things that people wrote on back then was also the kind of ink that they used. The ink that they used did not, does not have the acid in it that, think that we have today. You may not know this, but unless you've had it in chemistry or something, but the acid in our ink is what causes our ink to bond to the paper. And that's why the, that's the difference between using ink and a pencil. A pencil doesn't bond with the paper. Ink does, and the reason why it does is because of the acid in the ink. It actually forms a molecular bond with the paper. That's why once something is written in ink, it's hard to it, for it to remove. But the ink in the Old Testament wasn't that way. And so if somebody had written something on a papyrus... And because papyrus was expensive, they wanted to reuse it. All they had to do was take a damp cloth, a wet cloth, and they could wipe that papyrus clean because it wasn't etched into the paper. And so they would start off with a clean sheet of paper, if you will, to write something down. The word that's being used right here in the, in the Greek is that word that means just like wiping that paper clean. So Paul is using a strong Greek word here as an idea of totally erasing, totally removing. Now the reason why, uh, for example, um, her translation had the canceling of the debt, you can translate this idea of the handwriting of ordinances into the idea in the Greek also meaning uh, like an IOU. In other words, a piece of paper that had debt on it. Um, you owed this, and therefore it needed to be paid. And, of course, the idea still fits, and it still works, uh, because of the fact that it could be talking about the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he canceled the debt that we had. And that fits with what Paul is talking about, about the old law, because the old law was there for what purpose? What was the whole thing about the old law? Well, look what it says in the next thing. It says, that was against us which was contrary to us. It created an IOU. In fact, I bet some of you, does anybody have intense opposition to us in their translation? Opposed to? The idea in the Greek is intense opposition. The law was intensely opposed to us. And the reason why it was intensely imposed to us is because it made us sinners. Read the book of Romans. All through it, Paul talks about how the law makes us sinners. It was against us because it caused us to be lost. It was the law that caused us to be lost. It was against us. It was contrary to us. Paul had spent the whole first chapter of the book of Colossians talking about all these wonderful things that Jesus Christ has done for us. That is in direct opposition to what the law was going to do for us. And that's why it was opposed to us. He's, he's wanting us to make a contrast here. He had told the church at Colossae, he had told us, all these wonderful, read chapter 1 again, all these wonderful, wonderful things that happened through Jesus Christ. None of that happens through the law. And therefore, it was opposed to us. It was contrary to us. It was in intense opposition to us. Everything about the law killed us. Now, why is it that everything about the law kills us? What is it about the law that kills us? 
There you go. We can't keep it. No matter how hard you try, you can't keep it. You could spend your entire life trying to keep the law, and it never would work. Uh, old illustration, you know, the law was kind of like getting perfect attendance at school. If you went to school every single day, you had perfect attendance. But if it came down to that very last day of school, and your parents decided you to stay home that day. You no longer had perfect attendance. But I was there every other day. It doesn't matter anymore. And the law was the same way. Well, I kept this, I did this, I did this, I did this. Well, you didn't keep this. Yeah, but I kept all this other stuff. It doesn't matter because you didn't keep that one thing. And that one thing made you break the law, and therefore you were lost. Yes. Absolutely. And so, and and the whole point of the law, remember the law wasn't always in existence. Abraham wasn't under the law. In fact, Abraham was under the law of faith. You go back and read the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. And this all talks about how that by faith Abraham received righteousness. And it goes on and explains how the law wasn't for that purpose. And it was after Abraham. But the law was for the purpose of making us realize that we could not save ourselves. There had to be something else. It showed us what sinners we are and how that we had to have Jesus Christ or there was no other way to do it. It was also set up so that Jesus could be the supreme sacrifice. And so there is once again a, an idea found in verse 14 that when Jesus died on the cross, he did away with the law in the sense that he was the only one and will be the only one ever in history to actually keep the law. And he died because he kept the law. He's the only one that could keep the law perfectly. He's the only one that could stand before God justified and said, I've done every single thing your law dictated, therefore I am saved. But instead of doing that, what did he do? He put the sins of the entire world on himself and died for each and every one of us. But that's the idea of the law is you earn your salvation. The idea of Jesus Christ is he redeems you through the grace of God. But the text goes on, it says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, talking about this handwriting of ordinances, nailing it to the cross. Now, nailing it to the cross is an interesting idea. Think of the word picture that we have in front of us now, the image that Paul has put in front of us. Picture, if you will, the Ten Commandments. The handwriting of ordinances, those two stones. And picture now, they've been, on, they've been put on the cross and they've been nailed to the cross. Now we know that literally didn't happen. But when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, they were nailed to the cross. But what's the ultimate word picture that should come in our mind if we look at that law being nailed to the cross, say right beside Jesus Christ, maybe above his head or below his feet or whatever. What, what picture should come into your mind then? All right. The law was crucified along with Jesus Christ. The law has been put to death. See the picture it paints there? There's some people who think that the idea that the law being nailed was put up to, to show, show it and somehow or another, but that makes no sense to me. It's the idea that it was nailed along with Jesus Christ and therefore it was put to death too. When Jesus died, the law was put to death and therefore it's no longer of any uh, consequence anymore to us. But any questions or comments on that before we move to verse 
15. And, and they were the precursors of the Gnostics in that sense. They weren't satisfied with just saying, you know, you've you got to keep the law of Moses. They wanted to make sure that there was a group of people who what they were called, quote-unquote, super Jews, that they were more spiritual than everybody else. And so look what they did. They said, well, if you want to be more spiritual than everybody else, you need to become like us. You need to be like the Pharisees. And if you're going to be more spiritual like the Pharisees, then there's certain things you have to do that's above and beyond what the Bible requires you to do. But the thing about that is they oftentimes didn't do that themselves. They just required of other people to do it. And then you had silliness too. There were people who just for the sake of showing that they were super Jewish religious people, they would go to extremes to prove it. Like the, you know, they would, Jesus talks about how that they would uh, whiten their face. It looked like they've been fasting forever to prove to everybody this is how spiritual I am. Well, it doesn't matter what other people think about you. It's what God thinks about you. But it was all about what they wanted to look like and what they wanted to be. Uh, there's the old um, um, bruised and cut Pharisees that, of, of legends that people... Uh, sometimes talk about. And I know Karen, maybe some others have heard about them, but in an effort to show how pious they were and how straight they were morally, uh, whenever they were in the streets, they would never uh, open their eyes lest they see a, a woman or see something else that might entice them. So they kept their eyes closed. And if you keep your eye closed, what happens? <laughs> you run into things. Cause they, so they called them the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they were a, sp- a specific sect that liked to do that. But you know, the Pharisees were forerunners of Gnosticism because the Gnosticism, Gnosticism was saying if you want to be a super Christian, if you really want to be religious, if you really want to find redemption and salvation, then you need to come to us and let us tell you how to do it. And they were binding, of course, as we said, uh, uh, different aspects of philosophy, astrology, uh, Judaism, and um, asceticism, different things. And Paul's dealing with all these in this particular chapter. But good comments. Anything else? All right, well, look what has happened. Because of the fact that he has nailed the old law to the cross and done away with it, blotted it out, wiped it out, did away with it, it says, because of this, he says, and having, this took place when this took place, and adds them together, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, before I say anything at all about this verse, I'm just curious what anybody thinks this verse is saying. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And keep in mind, the he in this particular story, or this particular verse, is Jesus. Okay? The reason why I had you do that is, this is one of the most difficult verses, not only to understand, but also translate in the New Testament Greek. Uh, People struggle with this verse, exactly what Paul is talking about because of the fact of the different verb tenses in it. We can't figure out if he's talking about something Jesus did or something that was done to the people because of Jesus. In fact, the word for spoil here is a word that's only been used one time in all of history, and Paul used it. It's not in classical Greek. It's not in anywhere else in the New Testament. No one has ever seen this word before but Paul. So we don't know if Paul made it up or, or what, but, but the idea, huh? Well, you might have the word, you might have disarmed, you might have stripped, you might have, you know, you have disarmed. All right, because they're not quite sure exactly how to translate this word, but they can tell from the context of what's happening here. Um, 
what's going on, and also you run into a problem with this verse. This probably doesn't mean anything to y'all because you know, probably, you know, you don't think about such things. But almost all the verb tenses in this in this particular verse are in the passive voice, which is a hard thing to do with the Greek as far as trying to figure out uh, which connection is being made here. And so, I kind of give you. We'll kind of go through it, and and I'll give you my slant on it, and it will disagree with some people, and it will agree with some people, uh, but we'll just kind of go through. But beginning with verse 14, after talking about Jesus dying on the cross and doing away with the old law, keep in mind that's what we're talking about, it says, having spoiled, the word spoil there, as we've already pointed out, is more likely, and Karen's translation had it better, a disarming, or a taking away of power. Or taking away, it's an idea of any use that somebody had of something, they no longer have it anymore. And so fruit, of course, that's not any good. It's considered spoiled. To take a gun out of someone's hand is to disarm them. Um, Some people translate this particular word stripped, um, having stripped principalities and power. And once again, stripping, if you took clothes off of somebody, then they no longer have clothes, or if you strip Wallpaper, that wallpaper is no longer off the wall. Some, whatever Paul had in mind here, and we're not sure because of the word he used, it's the idea that something's now been removed. He may, he's maybe playing, making a play on words in verse 14 of how that he had the cross removed the old law, and because the cross removed the old law, something else was removed. Okay? So he disarmed, stripped, spoiled principalities and powers. Well, what are the principalities and powers? We don't know for sure. We do know that the word that he uses for powers in verse 15 is the exact same word he uses over in chapter 1 in verse 13 when he says, who has delivered us from the power of darkness. It's the same word there. And so he's more than likely talking about the principalities and powers of darkness. And so, who would that be? Satan, devil. And, of course, it would also apply to the Gnostics. It also would apply to the Pharisees. It would apply to anyone who would try to say that Jesus Christ's blood and his death on the cross was not efficient enough to do what needed to be done in order to save us, and we had to have something else. But it ultimately talks about Satan here because when Jesus died on the cross and did away with the old law... He took away Satan's power. And that's how he spoiled, how he disarmed, how he stripped away Satan's power. Because when he died died on the cross, he did away with Satan's two greatest weapons. The old law gave Satan his two greatest weapons, sin and death. Jesus dying on the cross did away with both of those. Because of the fact, as like Sharon's text said, because the IOU was satisfied, we no longer have a debt anymore. The old law that caused us to be in debt is gone. And therefore, we've taken the power away from Satan. Well, you go through and he says that he made a show of them openly. And it may be that he is making a dig here at um, the Gnostics. The idea in the Greek is not just in fact, somebody have different something different openly. What was that? Publicly. The idea in the Greek is public display, and it wasn't a good word. It was a public display of something that you didn't want to be publicly displayed. 
okay? And so maybe what he's driving at here is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was there for everybody to see. This was not done in a hidden way. Remember the Gnostics were really big about hidden stuff, hidden mysteries. Let's go into this dark room and we'll have a special ceremony to get you to the next level and all that kind of stuff. But when Jesus Christ did what he did to redeem mankind, he did it in a public, open way, almost in a shameful way, which is the idea of the word here. You know, he was stripped naked, okay? And he hung between heaven and earth for every eye to see, for every person to to scoff at, make fun of, and whatnot. The salvation of of our salvation was done in public, in an open way, the Gnostics say, no, your salvation is done in mystery, in hidden ways. Yes. All right, public spectacle. Okay, very good. And that's the idea behind the word there. And because he did that in a public way, he caused him to triumph over them in it. That which was, does my knock on the door? Or the bathroom maybe? Okay, uh, must be what it is. But something that was done in a public spectacle way that was, would be something that would be shameful. It's the idea of the fact that he actually received a crown over it. That which is shameful actually, actually was his victory. And so that's my best way to interpret that particular verse. And like I said, if you do any study on this, you'll find some other different ideas behind this. Uh, but like I said, it's a very difficult verse because of the, the different tenses that are used in the Greek here. And, and Paul literally uses a word... That's only been this is the only time it's been used in all of history that we know of. So, makes it interesting. And once again, the the idea that that's the passive voice coming through again, too, and that's why they have a struggle with it. Anything else on that? All right. After setting that foundation, Paul has said, the old law is done away with. It's been crucified on the cross. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, he has totally taken away the power of Satan through the old law. And so in verse 16, he uses the word therefore. In other words, everything he has said now connects to this. If what I've said earlier is true about the cross and about stripping away the power, then this is true. Verse 16 says, Let no man therefore judge you, in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of new moon for uh, I've lost my place here or new moon or of the Sabbath Sabbath days uh, days is added by the King James but it's not in the original that no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of new moon or of Sabbath day now what do you think he's talking about there that's, I think that's exactly it that's exactly it, Flo. The idea of judge here in verse 16 is more than just the idea of, well, I'm passing judgment on you. It's the idea of condemning you. And that's what the Gnostics would do. They would condemn you because you're not doing what they said you to do. And what they told you to do was to keep the old law. And so what he's done here now is brought in aspects of the old law that you don't need to worry about. You don't need to worry about these old parts of the old law. Evidently, this is what the Gnostics were making these people do. They were making them observe certain kind of of meat laws, certain kind of drink laws, certain kind of uh, making sure they observe the holy days, the new moons, and the, and the Sabbath. And we'll talk more about each one of these in just a moment. 
But the idea is, because of what happened in verses 14 and 15, let nobody condemn you if you don't keep these particular days anymore. And so, he first of all mentions meat or in drink. Now, the meat part of it is pretty easy to understand here. What is he? you think he's referring to as far as the meat is concerned? Bacon. Bacon. Oh, I love bacon. And a good pork sandwich. Couldn't have any of that stuff. The Jews had some dietary laws. And, um, in fact, it was divided up like this. You had clean and you had unclean. Clean you could eat. Unclean, you stay away from it. And for whatever reason, we don't know for sure, God decided that pork was unclean. Now, something great and wonderful happened to prove this particular point that there was no such thing as clean and unclean to one of our apostles. Anybody remember what that was? All right, sheep coming down from heaven. It was the first golden corral, wasn't it? And he was hungry. He says, do not call that which I have made clean, unclean. There in Acts chapter 10, okay? And that had to happen three times for Peter to pick up on it. Because it had been so drilled into his head. There was clean, there was unclean. There's things you could eat and there's things you cannot eat. This verse is saying that's no longer in fact anymore. There's no dietary laws for Christians. Uh, even Jesus talked about it. It's not that what goes into the mouth that defiles the body, Okay? If, and Paul, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, talks about has, that food has nothing to do with spirituality. So evidently, these Gnostics were saying, you can't eat this, you can't eat this. And it might have been strictly on the, on the dietary laws. But what's interesting here is Paul also makes mention of drink. And there's really no thing in the Old Testament law about drinks. The, the priests, they, they couldn't and be involved in any kind of intoxication when they were serving the Lord. But there was something particular that was very strict on having anything to do with with grapes at all. And also very strict about having to do with anything but with flesh at all. Couldn't come in contact with grape, and you couldn't come in contact with, with animal flesh. And that was called the Nazarite vow. And so it may be that the Gnostics were even impressing upon these people that you not only have to keep the Jewish law, dietary laws, you've got to keep the Nazarite law. And you have to totally abstain from meat of any kind. Now, why would they say you need to abstain from meat of any kind? Think of what one of the key components of Gnosticism is. Flesh is evil. There you go. So if flesh is evil, why in the world would you want to eat it? I'm not putting that nasty stuff in my body. Flesh is evil. I don't care how good that hamburger tastes. You don't, you don't want that in you because flesh is evil. And so they think that Paul, since he's combined the two here together, since there really wasn't any type of really drinking laws in, in the old law, except pertaining to the priests, that they had combined and made a rule that was more like the Nazarite vow that did have something to do with that. Yes, Flo. Well, they're pulling that from the idea of where the, um, when they had the Jerusalem conference and they were trying to decide about uh, what part of the law moved into Christianity. And one of the things that the apostles decided that you couldn't eat blood. And therefore, they, they take it from that particular idea. Yeah, but if blood's going into your body that's not your blood. And that's the idea. If you ingest blood, you're putting blood into your body that's not yours. And if you're 
getting a transfusion, you're getting blood that's not yours. And then they go back to the book of Genesis and how that the life is in the blood and all that. It's, it's very convoluted. That's a, lot of this, a lot of things in, in cults and stuff don't make a whole lot of sense. Because they get their information from somebody like Mary Baker, Eddie, and others who just said whatever they wanted to say and said this was the way it is. It's not usually based on Scripture. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, there are, there's a religious organization today that, that um, says that you can't eat pork again. You've got to keep the Jewish laws. In fact, uh, you might not realize this, but the only reason why we have cereal for breakfast today is because of the Seventh-day Adventist. Battle Creek, Michigan was the heyday of the Seventh-day Adventists, and they were trying to come up with a meat substitute and came up with cereal. And that's the reason why we have cereal today. They were trying to find something that would take the place of meat because they have dietary laws in the Seventh-day Adventists. But um, do some research on that. You'd be surprised um, about the cereal wars and who was trying to come up with a better cereal, all in the name of that particular religion. But any other thing, Flo? Okay. All right. So he goes on and he says, or in respect of a holy day or feast day, literally, or the new moon or of the Sabbath. Now, I read all that together instead of breaking it down because without a doubt, the Apostle Paul is talking about Jewish stuff here. Because I want to show you something that's interesting. Notice the way he words it. Then I want some help here. Um, Frankie, look up Hosea chapter 2 and verse 11. And Scott, look up uh, Ezekiel. You know, it's either, I've forgotten now, it's either chapter 45 and verse 7 or chapter 46 and verse 7. Look at both of them and you'll figure it out if I'm, I've got the right one or not, especially after Frankie reads his. But look at the wording of verse 16 and then listen to what Frankie reads and listen to what Scott reads. Hosea 2, uh, now, I'm, now I'm questioning that. It's either 11 or verse 4. Read, look, read verse 11. If it's not right, I'll... I'll yeah, 211. What does that say? All right. Notice what's being done there. What Hosea says, he's talking about the Israelite people. If they didn't repent, he would cause all their feast days, new moon, and Sabbath days to cease. Now, Scott, read what yours says. Read on down to the end. If it doesn't have feast days, new moon, and Sabbath days, I'll give you the wrong verse. Go to, 40, go to 45 then. I'm sorry. All right, so it was 17. It wasn't 7. I apologize. My point in all that, and I'm sorry I messed that up, my point in all that is here's the exact same wording in the book of Colossians in verse 16 that Paul was pulling directly from the Old Testament, showing you basically anything pertaining to the Old Testament you don't have to worry about anymore. Don't let anybody condemn you for it. He's using this phraseology not just to name things specifically, which he does, but he's doing it to show that the whole system you're no longer under the whole system as he pulls from the Old Testament and somebody that had familiarity with this realized that he was doing this. Paul was pulling on his Jewish background, his heritage. He was a Pharisee, by the way. And pulled this out to let them know that he's talking about Judaism as a whole. But what was a feast day or a holy day? Man, I'm sorry, time has run out again. Let's just finish this one verse up. What was a feast day or a holy day? It would be like the Feast of Tabernacles, Passover, Pentecost, we don't have to keep those anymore. 
The new moon we're not very familiar with because we don't talk about it much, but the Jews also had to make an offering at the beginning of every new month, and their month was based on the new moon. Every time there was a new moon, they had a new month in the Jewish calendar, and they were required to make offerings to the Lord. And obviously, we understand what the Sabbath day was. The Sabbath was given specifically to the Jews to help them remember when they were delivered from Egyptian captivity. It was considered rest from slavery, and so he tied it into the seventh day when God rested. There's a misnomer to think that the Jews were given the Sabbath just to commemorate when God rested on the seventh day. Nope, the Bible is very clear. It was because they were delivered from captivity, and that's what they were supposed to think about on the Sabbath day. But our time is up. We have to stop. Well, here's the problem with that particular verse. If you look real close, you'll find days in italics. That means it's not in the original. Yeah, it was added by the King James for some reason. I guess to help make it flow better, but, but it's not in the original language. 